Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Matek. How's it going, Aaron? It's going great. And this week we have a wonderful guest, Norman Finkelstein. Oh, yeah. The possibly, the most, possibly the most popular guest we have in Useful Idiots. It's hard to yeah. think. Who Very controversial guy, though. But Very not on our show. Beloved yeah. on our show, yeah. I mean, of course, people love it when the founder of the show, co-founder of the show, Matt Taibbi, comes back. But That's in the absence of, of Matt, Norman is up there. And yeah. uh, we have a lot to talk to him about this week. Uh, including this controversy in Canada that's now causing a global scandal, the Canadian Parliament applauding a Nazi veteran. Yeah, literally giving him a standing ovation. Not applauding in the uh, figurative, uh, metaphorical way, but actual, yeah, actual standing up. So we're going to get into that with Norman and a whole lot more. But Also what his thoughts on Cornell West are, which uh, you'll have to join the uh, Substack to access that. And Ibram Kendi. There's a lot to discuss with Norman. And of course, we remind you to take advantage of our low price, our low price at Substack, because uh, you have until October 1st to join at that low, low price. And you're definitely going to want to do it with this Norman Finkelstein episode. Uh, Then we raise the price to $6 a month. So it's still very reasonable. And don't worry again, if you're already a subscriber, you're locked into your $5 a month low price. But if you're not, act fast. UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. That's exactly. UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. And by doing that, you also support the show and help us right. keep on going. So yeah. thank you for your support. And uh, if you can, act fast. Act fast. And you you support us and you also get extended interviews and our very fun Thursday Throwdown, which is your midweek dose of media madness where we react to media clips that are we laugh at instead of crying at. All right. Four basic food groups. Let's do it. Let's go. Democrats suck. That's mine. I got Democrats suck. So for Democrats suck, let's watch this clip of Robert Menendez, senior senator of New Jersey, responding to allegations of corruption. Uh, He is a very good defense of himself. Let's take a listen. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now this may seem old fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. I look forward to addressing other issues at trial. So uh, Menendez has been indicted before and he's in trouble because they found, in addition to hidden cash, they found golden bars, literally bars of gold, and a Mercedes, and uh, all sorts of evidence of of bribery. And his excuse for this behavior, the hidden gold, the hidden cash, is because he is the son of Cuban immigrants. But what's interesting about this is that he was actually... Uh, the son of Cuban immigrants who left Cuba under Batista, the dictator before Castro. So he's claiming that he's stashing all this money, which, by the way, bears the fingerprints of some of the people who are accused of bribing him. Like some of the envelopes that were found in his home apparently had the fingerprints of some of these individuals who are involved allegedly in this bribery scheme. He's claiming he's stashing that money because of his family's history in Cuba. But again, as you say, his family emigrated to the U.S. from Cuba before even the Castros took over. So even if you were to believe this is such a far-fetched excuse, it's undermined even by his own 
timeline. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unless, unless his family was hiding from Batista, Batista and he's still in which them, case I, I respect then much respect to them for doing that. Yeah. But given that he's been trying to reimpose empowering uh, people like Batista, I kind of doubt Robert Menendez and his family, from a family that was were threatened by that elite. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, right, but yeah. Um, regardless, everyone's entitled to their day in court. And if that's right. the excuse he's going to go with, then, you know, he should have the right yeah. to air it in court. And we'll see. I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah. Would this be funny guy, if this, this, this whole time he was really anti Castro because it was some weird family rebellion and his family was actually uh, uh, persecuted by Batista. And he switched sides. Yeah, that would be quite interesting, and maybe part of his trauma that he's invoking here exactly. about uh, his his history of his of his family. But this is a guy who has been so influential in foreign policy, whose policies have eviscerated entire countries. He proposes sanctions on any government that the U.S. wants to overthrow, including in Cuba, also Venezuela, Iran, Syria, and it's no surprise that there's a direct connection between being willing to impoverish people abroad. While meanwhile being willing to enrich yourself at home, I mean, right. the, the, this is the kind of like morality that leads our society. And maybe, just maybe, the indictment of this guy will lead to some rethinking of the wisdom of letting people like him dictate our foreign policy abroad. Well, amen to that. And there have been calls for him to step down, coming from um, Fetterman. Uh, Cory Booker finally said something, and um, Bernie Sanders. And probably yeah, by the a lot of people. I mean, even more. Yeah, a lot of people are pretty embarrassed by this, and fair enough. It's, I mean, look, we'll see what he says in court. Everyone is entitled to their yeah, defense, right, but uh, right. it's not looking good for no, Senator Menendez. Yeah, and Sherrod Brown also, Sherrod Brown also called on him to resign. Okay, for Republicans suck. There are some holdout Republicans in Congress who are not embracing the wisdom of fueling an endless proxy war in Ukraine. So some other Republicans, including arch neocon Bill Crystal, who supports every single war, no matter what. And he kind of identifies as, as a Democrat now, but historically he has been a Republican. Bill Crystal sponsored an ad to convince some of their holdout Republicans who aren't yet embracing funding of the Ukraine proxy war. Here it is. When America arms Ukraine, we get a lot for a little. Putin is an enemy of America. We've used 5% of our defense budget to arm Ukraine, and with it, they've destroyed 50% of Putin's army. We've done all this by sending weapons from storage, not our troops. The more Ukraine weakens Russia, the more it also weakens Russia's closest ally, China. America needs to stand strong against our enemies. That's why Republicans in Congress must continue to support Ukraine. So they're admitting here that they're using Ukraine to weaken Russia and also weaken China. But my question is like, I mean, yes, that is the goal. I mean, as we've been saying from the start here in Ustil Idiots, but don't you think if you're going to be so blunt about your contempt for Ukrainians and how they're just tools to weaken Russia and how we can sacrifice them because we don't have to send any troops of our own, you should at least like throw in a line about how we're also defending Ukraine from Russia. Oh. They don't even mention that. They don't even say we also need to help defend our allies, Ukraine. They're, right. they're so neocon and so right. fanatic about using other people for our own hegemonic goals that they don't even take the, a second to just acknowledge, at least in passing. They don't even know how to Ukrainians. pretend. Right. Yeah. They don't even yeah. have the decency to pretend to care. Yeah. But this is also a Democrat suck because Bill Kristol, the Republican, does not need to make an ad trying to convince any Democrats 
including Bernie Sanders, the squad, the entire Congressional Progressive Caucus. He doesn't need to make an ad trying to convince them to, to support the Ukraine proxy war because they're all on his side. Right. They're in perfect lockstep with him. And that's pretty depressing. Like, you'd think maybe there could at least be one holdout, but unfortunately not. Mm-mm. Well, for isn't that weird, we're continuing on this theme of uh, Ukraine proxy war because not only do we have uh, a war, but we also got merch and we got some edible merch. Let's take a look at this um, weird, this is truly weird, appropriate for isn't that weird, this weird TikTok of a woman dancing uh, in front of a new product that you guys are going to be very excited about. And that new product is Zelensky O's. Let's take a look. It's a woman dancing in front of two cereal boxes. She says, just got a glorious cereal delivery. And it says, POV, me after receiving my Zelensky O's. So what are Zelensky O's, you may want to know? Well, according to the website, they are a limited time only Honey O charitable cereal. Okay, so this is cereal. Kind of looks like Cheerios. I think that's kind of the the the, the shtick. Um, but they part of the money goes to Zelensky. Uh, as you can read, charitable. Fifty percent of Zelensky's go directly to charity, providing humanitarian support in Ukraine. Remaining proceeds will be used to cover costs and to allow us to continue our mission with charity at our core. Audit. We will have an independent audit carried out by a reputable firm to show that all the promised donations have been sent. This will take place after the purchase period of Zelensky owes to verify all of the total sales. So they're very concerned about uh, about where this money is going to. And if only our government were as concerned about where its money and arms are going to, I feel a little bit more comforted. But uh, I think that Zelensky owes Cheerios or Zelensky owes, I should say, the cereal. They have a better auditing system than the U.S. government. Based on their transparency, maybe they can take over the Pentagon after the Ukraine proxy war is over. Yeah. They're willing to have an audit off the bat without, you know, I mean, when I buy cereal, I'm not asking for an audit usually, even if it's uh, right. for, for charity. But the fact that they're willing to be so upfront, they sound like they should be running the Pentagon, which can't account for hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. in spending. So Yeah. And if you're uh, just listening to the podcast, just so you know, on the cover of Zelensky O's, you have an image of Zelensky wearing his kind of famous green uh, uh, sweater jacket, if you will, and then a t-shirt that's, of course, yellow and blue, and he's holding up in his fist a spoon, which is uh, maybe he's doing that to the not to an old Nazi. Maybe he's saluting an old Nazi as he did in real life. That spoon, yeah. All right. For Isn't That Terrible, Donald J. Trump, really interesting character, obviously former president, former reality TV show host. Now he's currently indicted in all sorts of cases. But did you know that he's also really concerned with the whales and particularly how windmills are harming the world whale population? But you have a better chance of being struck by lightning than hitting a whale with your boat. There has only been, listen to this, one such whale killed off the coast of South Carolina in the last 50 years. But on the other hand, their windmills are causing whales to die in numbers never seen before. Nobody does anything about that. They're washing up and show. I saw it this weekend. Three of them came up. They wouldn't, you wouldn't see it once a year. Now they're coming up on a weekly basis. The windmills are driving them crazy. They're driving, they're driving the whales, I think a little batty. Whoa. 
I didn't know this at all that windmills are driving whales insane, and that's terrible. And I know. I, I want to thank Donald Trump for raising awareness about this about this issue and uh, about whale mental illness. Yeah, and the, the well, role specifically health. of the windmills. Right. You know. Yeah. Like there are people out there who you know sometimes think that they're being uh, that they're being laser beamed and and driven crazy, and it sounds like actually this is what the, the windmills are doing this to the whales, according to Donald Trump. That's yeah. Forget Don Quixote. I mean, we got a whole new windmill uh, psychosis thing going on. <laughs> I like that he's so concerned about whales. You know, he's yeah, he really is. into into whales. I guess the man continues to surprise. Yeah. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. All right. This week's guest is returning useful idiot's favorite, Norman Finkelstein. He is the author of many books, including his latest, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom. And he has a new podcast called Norman Finkelstein's Podcast. Norman Finkelstein, thanks so much for joining us once again. Well, thank you for having me. You're two of my favorite uh, personalities on the web, but I only have around four personalities <laughs> on the web because I don't watch the web. So. Well, undoubtedly, Thanks. you're a fan favorite with useful idiots audience, so it's great, always great to have you back. And a lot of talk about this week. Let's start with this controversy in Canada, which has really grown, grown into a global scandal. The Canadian Parliament giving a standing ovation to a veteran of a World War II era Nazi unit. Uh, in Ukraine. Uh, let's watch the clip. Zelensky's speech received at least a dozen standing ovations. There was also one for this man, a 98-year-old Ukrainian-Canadian who fought for Ukrainian independence against the Russians during the Second World War. So this man's name is Yaroslav Hunka, and it turned out that when he was fighting against the Russians, as this uh, CBC, or as this news correspondent said, he was fighting for a Nazi unit and fighting against the side that Canada was on. And this erupted into a huge controversy and Canada has apologized. But this whole controversy has shown that a really dark secret that Canada after World War II admitted in Nazi veterans like this. And now inside Ukraine, the side that we're supporting in the proxy war against Russia, the followers of Nazi units like the one that this one was in are now on our side. And so, Norman, you know, observing all this, what are your thoughts? Proportionately, the Ukrainians fighting during World War II were overwhelmingly on the side of the Allies, those who fought. But there was, I think it was about 80,000 who fought on the Nazi side. Uh, but I remember it was a very big discrepancy. I myself was surprised that overwhelmingly it was on the Allied side. Now, that may be because, again, I don't know, it may be because they were recruited from the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine, uh, and the uh, Nazis came from, the Nazi allied, allied part came from um, the uh, non-Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine. Uh, 
I'm not sure any of this. Ruth would know. I mean, Ruth okay. keeps a very low profile, so she might not want to be on your program. Uh, but uh, she, uh, she's the top person because she was, as I said, she was the chief historian. Like, it wasn't for just Nazi. It was just for war criminals who uh, were admitted into Canada. Uh, so that's just a technical point. Well, it's an important technical point, but still the technical point where I possess no expertise. What struck me, well, first of all, uh, no, on a very personal note, it did deeply it, it offended me that the guy lived to be 98, which was significantly longer than my parents lived. And that's just a personal reaction. Uh, and your parents, of course, for those who don't know, were survivors of the Holocaust. My, well, I, I always have to qualify that. They were real survivors of the Nazi Holocaust. There are a lot of people who walk around saying they survived the Nazi Holocaust, you know, to a point where my late mother used to exclaim, if everybody who says he or she's a Holocaust survivor actually is one, then who did Hitler kill? Because everybody's going around claiming they're a Holocaust survivor. There were a very small number of Holocaust of, of survivors of the Nazi Holocaust. If you use the technical term, a survivor of the Nazi Holocaust was somebody who was either in the um, <clears throat> ghettos, the labor camps, or the extermination camps. And it usually was, strangely enough, there were survivors of all three. So my parents were in the Warsaw Ghetto from 1940 to 1943. The survivors of the ghetto, there were about, the estimates are, at least at the point when I was still reading the scholarship, the estimates were between 20 and 40,000 survived the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and then they were deported, all of them were deported to Maidanic concentration camp. So both my mother and father were deported to Maidanic concentration camp. They didn't know each other at that point. And my mother, so Maidanic was a death, was a half labor camp, half death camp, like Auschwitz. Uh, and then my mother was deported to a labor camp two labor camps in Poland. My father ended up in, according to my mother, I've never, I never verified it. My father was in eight concentration camps. He ended up in Auschwitz and he was in the Auschwitz death march. So my point being that group, ghetto, labor camp, death camp, that group, the estimates are at the end of the war, under 100,000 survived. And at that point, to be a Holocaust survivor meant to go through that ordeal. Now, after the war, or I should say much later in the 1970s, it was completely redefined. So people who were in Russia during World War II were called Holocaust survivors. Now, all of my parents' friends were in Russia during World War II. They would never have dared say they were Holocaust survivors. You thanked your lucky stars if you got into Russia during World War II. When I say got into Russia, I have to remember I'm speaking to a very young audience. Uh, as you know, Poland was divided between Russia and Germany as a result of the, what's called the Hitler-Stalin Pact or the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And a large number of Jews fled from the German side to the Russian side. The estimates are about 300,000 Jews. And they survived. They survived. Was it wonderful under the Russians during World War II? No, but guess what? It wasn't wonderful for anybody in Russia 
during World War II. And 30 million of them ended up on the ground. Uh, but they would never have dared say in front of my parents that they were Holocaust survivors. In Russia, you were with everybody else. My parents, so when you say Holocaust survivors, my old mother always used to append to it, we're the real McCoys, if you know that expression. We yeah, went, through, yeah. went through the whole thing. And they died at relatively, you know, by current standards, relatively young ages, uh, 74, mm. 74 and 75. So when I heard 98, you know. Only the good die uh, young, as they say. Yeah. yeah. Kissinger, yeah. Rockefeller, um, all these people yeah. living. Right. Well, I always say that depending on who dies first, Henry Kissinger or Noam Chomsky, we'll know whether Richard Dawkins or Syed Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, is right about whether there's a God. Right. That's a long joke to figure out, but I think you can get it. <laughs> I think it's a fair, it's good, yeah. So my reaction to it was, first of all, uh, it's very funny now to read the coverage of it because one of the Canadian officials um, said the biggest crime that was committed that uh, moment in the parliament, the Canadian parliament, the biggest crime was we forced Zelensky to raise his fist. And that's the, the horror that we forced Zelensky. Now, number one, nobody forced Zelensky to do anything. His raising of his fist was of his volition. Number two, and you guys can correct me, but his raising of the fist came after the speaker said that he fought against the Russians during World War II. Now, Zelensky knows English. If he heard that this fellow fought against the Russians in Ukraine, during World War II, then a bulb had to go off, go on in his head. If he fought the Russians, he must have been on the Nazi side. Or it's true that the Benderaites split off from the Nazis at a certain point, but they were still ideologically of the same stripe as the Nazis. So when he raised his hand, this Jew... This Jew, as we're constantly told, from Ukraine, he was lending himself to the Nazi cause. Nobody took his arm and told him to hold it up. So that, to me, was a very, well, it's a revealing commentary. Not that they were applauding a Nazi. That's not a big problem. You know, the big problem was that... Uh, well, of course, you know, what their fear was, the propaganda fallout, which is going to be a bonanza for right. Russia now. They're going to have Zelensky cheering on the Nazis. So no, but why is it not a big problem that they're plotting a Nazi? Oh, I'm saying they think it's for not them. a big problem. Okay, okay, got it. Uh, yeah, no, they said the big problem was that Zelensky was pumping got his fist for a Nazi. That, that's it. how they defined the problem. They said it's a shocking thing. We did that. We did that to Zelensky. Nobody did that to right. Zelensky. They put him in that position. They're saying, but I mean, they are apologizing for the Nazi thing too. But I think what you're referring to, Norman, is the um, the way in which 
Nazi apologia is is acceptable in certain corners, especially in Canada? Uh, I'm referring to the last account I read last night where one of the Canadian officials uh, stated that the most shocking thing was that we put Zelensky in this embarrassing position. Um, as to the rest, I think it was just another, so to speak, a wake-up call, which is not going to wake up anybody, yeah. that this is not a clear-cut case in Ukraine. You know, I, I was... Uh, I, I, obviously, Aaron has been out there uh, and we can list about, I'd say roughly about 10 people, roughly. There would be John Mearsheimer, Jeffrey Sachs, Noam Chomsky, Lieutenant Colonel uh, McGregor, uh, Scott Ritter. You know, I, that's five, and there's probably five I've missed. But I think, and you know, you could disagree with me on this. Uh, because of my family background, I was the one from day one who kept saying, you cannot extract what's happening here from the historical memory of the Russian people. And I was the, I think, but Aaron, you're free to correct me and I'm going off on a self-promotion. You're, 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 no, you should tell me uh, or tell the audience. But I was the one from the beginning who said, you have to see the historic context of what's going on here. And one of the key elements, in my opinion, of the historical context is what the Russian people endured during World War II and the visceral reaction they have to the uh, over, over or disproportionate, oversized or disproportionate representation of Nazis within key areas of Ukraine in political and military life. I'm not saying they're a majority, yep. but... There is no question that they are disproportionate in their representation. Now, I read an article by uh, Aaron yesterday, uh, which he sent out via his, I guess it's called Substack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of the article, you credited the Maiden insurrection to the Nazi elements. And I shook my and head. And this is the coup. And this is the coup in 2014 yeah. that right. began and, the the war, basically. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. For your audience, fill in the background to stop me. And when I read that, I shook my head and I said, maybe I should just drop Aaron a note and say, I don't think that's entirely accurate. At the beginning, it did seem to be fairly spontaneous what happened. But then later in the article, Aaron cl uh, clarified the point. At the beginning, it was a fairly spontaneous, though limited, but it was spontaneous demonstration. But by the end, and anybody who knows politics knows, those who are most organized are the ones who can hijack because they know exactly what they were doing. And by the end of the demonstrations, it was clear that the far right elements, because they were well organized, uh, the far right elements seized the initiative, I don't want to say seized total control, but seized significant control. And, you know, for somebody of my background, of course, I'm because I'm uh, highly sensitive to this Nazi issue. And that was how I reacted right at the beginning of the um, 
February uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine. And um, so I think I began by saying a few moments ago, it's a kind of wake up call for, for people who will never wake up, that there's a very sordid, squalid thing, at least an underside of what this war is about. And as you recall, and I'm sure Aaron recalls, because he's been following the coverage meticulously, at the beginning, the first year, you couldn't say anything about the Nazi aspect. I'm calling it the aspect. I'm not saying it's the whole thing. You were not allowed to say anything about the Nazi aspect of Ukrainian life or Ukrainian history that was being a Putin puppet. About roughly a year and a half into the war, Aaron can correct me, I would say roughly a year and a half, some coverage started to creep in that there was this Nazi aspect and it wasn't just Putin puppetry uh, because a, uh, a large number of the recruits or conscripts where it was hard to cover up anymore. We're wearing the Nazi insignia. Well, Norman, let's show an example of this. Here's an article from the New York Times in June of 2023, and this is the headline. Nazi symbols on Ukraine's front lines highlight thorny issues of history. Troops' use of patches bearing Nazi emblems risks fueling Russian propaganda and spreading imagery that the West has spent a half century trying to eliminate. So here's an acknowledgement that Ukrainian forces are openly showing Nazi insignia, but it's framed as a problem that will help fuel Russian propaganda, not the fact that actually we're arming and supporting troops that are openly supporting Nazi symbols. And that was, that was the first acknowledgement. You have to remember, up until that month, June 2023, any mention, any mention that there might be a Nazi aspect or facet that was worth pondering was immediately dismissed as Nazi, uh, excuse me, as Putin propaganda. We should take a look at how Justin Trudeau uh, does this, pivots to the Putin propaganda point. We have that clip. Yeah, I saw it. Obviously, it's extremely upsetting that this happened. Uh, the speaker, speaker has uh, acknowledged his mistake uh, and has apologized. Uh, but this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and, by extension, to all Canadians. I think particularly of Jewish MPs and all members of the Jewish community across the country who are uh, celebrating Yom, or commemorating Yom Kippur today. Uh, I think it's going to be really important that all of us push back against Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and continue our steadfast and unequivocal support for Ukraine, uh, as uh, we did last week with announcing uh, further measures to stand with Ukraine in uh, Russia's illegal war against it. Don't let this get in the way of uh, funding the war and arming Ukraine. No, but note how some all of a sudden he pivots to somehow talking about Russian Russia, yeah. disinformation right. as if, like, did the Russians force Canada to bring this Nazi veteran into the chamber and give him a standing yeah. ovation? Is, is it, are we now blaming that on Russia, too? Yeah. Even if you want to support Ukraine in the war, the idea of trying to affect, you know, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, a few months ago, I was reading 
the recently published translation of Rosa Luxemburg's uh, political writings. It's been published by Verso Press. And during the first, what was called the first Russian revolution of 1904 to 1905, the precursor to 1917, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, a revolutionary that she was, uh, she went right into the midst of the fighting during the revolution, the first revolution. Many people counseled her not to go because it was very dangerous. Uh, that didn't deter her. She went. And one of the striking things in her accounts is during the 1904-1905 revolution, there were many pogroms committed by what were, uh, the uh, Tsarist forces against the Jews. And as you read her accounts, because she was sending back journalistic dispatches, to, I should say again for your audience, Rosa Luxemburg was a revolutionary from the uh, beginning of the 19th, uh, 20th century. Um, and she eventually ended up in the leading party of the socialist movement, namely the German Social Democratic Party. But she was of Polish origin. And um, at that point, uh, Poland was a part of Russia. So she went over to the Russian Revolution and then sent back dispatches on the, the events unfolding in the revolution, the first Russian Revolution. And one of the things that was very striking in reading it was most of the pogroms were occurring in Ukraine. I knew it from the names of the cities she would describe. You know, she described in this city, this, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's Ukrainian city. That's Ukraine. And there's a very ugly history of uh, not just anti-Semitism, but mass murder of Jews. And that, that ugly history revealed itself in all of its bloodiness during World War II, again, where there were mass, you know, huge massacres. And um, for me growing up, now maybe it's not right, I'll acknowledge, but my parents had more fear of Ukrainians than they had of Germans. And Ukrainians had a very ugly record. Uh, and now to try to whitewash or pretend it's not there. If you want to say to me, okay, it's not true of a majority of Ukrainians, well, during World War II, I'm not sure, but uh, nowadays, okay, maybe. But to pretend that that history is not there, that it never happened, that it's all Russian propaganda. You know, for anybody who knows the history, that's just so ridiculous. Now, you can say, as Aaron said in the article, it's not true to say that the Kiev regime is a Nazi regime. Fine, that, that's, that to me is obviously correct. But as Aaron goes on to say, you know, I'm going to give you one example that was very striking to me. So there was a big siege uh, between the Russian army and the Ukrainian army over Bakhmut. So Anatoly Ivan, He's covering that particular uh, siege going on in Bakhmut, or battle going on in Bakhmut. And he says, you know, I much prefer the heroic Ukrainians who went out to fight to those uh, mercenaries under Prigozhin. Okay? And I'm thinking to myself, Mr. Levin, who everybody likes to quote because he's such a good liberal, 
I'm thinking to myself, Mr. Levin, if you want to have a proper juxtaposition, why are you juxtaposing those Ukrainians who went out to defend their country during the first months of the Russian invasion with Prigozhin's mercenaries? Why aren't you juxtaposing Prigozhin's mercenaries with the people they are fighting on the other side in Bakhmut? Now, who were they fighting on the other side in Bakhmut? Do you happen to remember, uh, Aaron? Well, I mean, it does include the Azov Battalion. They were which fighting is the but, but, but I'm sure it wasn't just the Azov Battalion in, in Bakhmut. I have to say at, that. At, in, that, in, at that point, yeah. no, it wasn't just Prigozhin on the uh, Russian side. Right. Okay, yeah. At that point, it was Beletsky on the other side. Let me explain that. Yes. Yeah. So Beletsky is the uh, founder of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. He's the guy who famously said that Ukraine's mission should be to lead a crusade uh, to uh, for the white race, basically, and eradicate the subhumans. He's the founder of the Azov Battalion. And in the early months of the uh, Russian invasion, we were told that Beletsky was no longer associated with Azov. Azov had changed its ways. It's, 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 it's undergone a change. It's now just a normal militia. And then lo and behold, in this battle for Bakhmut, we learn that actually Beletsky is commanding Azov forces in the fight for Bakhmut. And just recently, uh, Zelensky published a video of him meeting with Beletsky to talk military strategy. So this fiction we got that Azov had reformed, they're no longer tied to this anti-Semite neo-Nazi Beletsky, that's, that's a complete fiction. But isn't that the obvious juxtaposition? If you're going to look, Prigozhin was not a nice guy. I don't think he should have been killed by probably Putin. But uh, I'm not going to claim he's a nice guy. But why not make the obvious comparison with Beletsky? Now, one thing that um, uh, Levin did, which also was very revealing to me. And here we may disagree, but I'm going to claim my knowledge is superior. Um, he used the example of the Ukrainians who went out to fight at the very beginning of the war. And that's true. There was a real esprit de corps among the Ukrainians, a real willingness to fight. That has vanished. It's vanished. I live in the Ukrainian area. They call it Little Odessa by the sea. That's what it's informally known as. And it's probably now about, I would estimate, 60% Ukrainian. And the other half is uh, Russian, but also from the former Russian uh, states like uh, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, um, uh, Belarusian. <clears throat> it's all Russian or a former Russian. When you walk along the seashore, I go every day, you walk along the seashore, it's now wall-to-wall -wall Ukrainian. They all left. Anybody who could get out, got out. And that's not the only revealing thing. It's not only that they got out, but when you ask them, where are you from? And they say Ukrainian, and they smile. And they're on the beach, they're sunning themselves, they're having a good time. Why do I mention this? There's no embarrassment about having, quote unquote, fled their country. If this were a real 
cause, now I'm talking about now, not the first months, if it were a real cause, they would be so embarrassed to be here while their friends and family are getting killed. But there's no longer any emotional investment among Ukrainians. Now there are, you know, the die the diehards, the Azov battalions. But among Ukrainians, if you follow the news closely, everybody is trying to get out. Everybody who can is trying to get out, and there's no shame in having gotten out. Okay, got it. So that's your anecdotal experience. I just want to be fair, though. We're not in Ukraine, so we don't know exactly what it's I like. I talk to many Ukrainians. But I got it. I got it. I Listen, Norma. Every yeah. day. Another interesting clip that we have is uh, we have Trudeau apologizing, but we also have uh, the Liberal Party of Canada's House leader, Karina Gould. She sought unanimous consent to strike Anthony Rhoda's comments about Yaroslav Hunka from the record. And the Conservative Party of Canada denied that. But we have some uh, a clip of that happening. And you're going to see uh, Krista Freeland nodding in the, in the background as this woman suggests striking Rhoda's comments from the record. And again, Rhoda is the speaker who praised the Nazi. I would like to ask for unanimous consent to adopt the following motion that notwithstanding any standing order, special order, or usual practice of the House, the recognition made by the Speaker of the House of an individual present in the galleries during the joint address to Parliament by His Excellency Volodymyr Zelensky be struck from the appendix of the House of Commons debates of Thursday, September 21st, 2023, and from any House multimedia recording. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, I guess we have to go to the, uh, we'll ask about unanimous consent and go to it. Uh, all those opposed to the Honourable uh, Ministers moving the motion will please say nay. We don't, we don't have unanimous consent. to explain our rationale. It goes without saying that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What happened on Friday was shameful and brought embarrassment to this chamber. It was an ugly reminder of what survivors of the Holocaust know too well, that we must never forget. Deleting the text of the speaker's words from Hansard's whatever. I'm going to have to interrupt. I'm, I see this, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Uh, I, I'm afraid it's getting into debate more than anything else. I'm, I'm afraid it's it's debate more than anything else, and uh, I can't uh, point of order on something that's already been voted on. I'm just trying to make some sense out of it. During the Stalin era, when Stalin wanted to rewrite the history of the Russian Revolution, there were many pictures of Stalin, excuse me, of Lenin right next to Trotsky. And there became these many famous pictures. Trotsky was removed from the picture, and he wasn't part of the revolution. A race from history. And, yeah. And that's what you're seeing here. It happened. What do you mean you're going to remove it from the record? And maybe you should have another motion. That henceforth, we agree never again to refer to that incident. And if anybody mentions that incident, we hereby agree to react with shock and surprise that you would make this accusation against any member of our Canadian Parliament. It's just it's so, so I hate to use the cliche of Orwellian, but this is just such an Orwellian thing where you take 
a public motion to rewrite the historical record. It happened. It should be a source of reflection, not effacement. Norman, this is, you were, you know, your book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom, deals with this dynamic on the left. And what I find very interesting is when you're writing this book, you had a lot of associates, even friends, reading early drafts and urging you not to publish it because they felt as if you were being too harsh on other members of the left and in your critiques of identity politics politics and how that is weaponized to undermine class-based politics. Uh, politics calling for, as you talked about, a redistribution of wealth, a longtime leftist tenant. Um, but I was very uh, heartened to see recently, you know, one of the most respected people on the left, you know, broadly, someone who has been very influential, is now currently running for president, and that's Cornell West. You had a conversation with him recently where he praised your book, and I want to go to a clip of that. It's a beautiful thing just to be able to be in conversation with my dear brother Norman. I do want to just point this book out to these folks. This is a magisterial text. I was blessed to read every word that I'm telling you. The footnotes go on and 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 on. <laughs> it could be Rosa Luxemburg talking about birds and skies and human tears. <laughs> it could be Du Bois or it could be Douglas, Frederick Douglass across the board. And so I do uh, highly recommend this to people because he's, he's, he's swinging now. You know, Sister Kimberly Crenshaw and others, even Angela, he's swinging, but he's swinging in the name of truth and justice. So, Norma, you know, I, don't, I know you don't need external validation, but I do think it was important that Cornell West, you know, one of the most influential leftist academics there is, uh, who has broken through into the mainstream, which also is an accomplishment in itself, was here praising your book. And I just wanted to acknowledge that um, as we move towards wrapping this uh, this interview. Well, first thing, I had not read much by Cornel West. As I said, I was micro-focused on Israel-Palestine. I read some things outside, but not a lot. But in preparation for the interview I did with him, which ran three hours, I did sit down and read through a lot. And I have to say it. And you know, I am not obsequious by nature, and I'm not a flatterer by nature. I was absolutely dazzled. I was bewildered by the range and depth of his knowledge. Now, there are at least four areas, philosophy, religion, world literature, and African-American history and culture where he's the match of anybody at the top tier. There's no question in my mind about that. I know, as I said, I'm not praising it. I'm a good BS detector. I know when somebody claims to have read a book and didn't read it, and when they claim to have read a book and they did read it. The range of the precision of his references to characters in the book that's not padding a resume. That's for real. So I was, my opinion of him, I'll tell you, I was totally humbled by the end of reading his books, several of them, not all of them, humbled, as in, Norm, he's better than you. He's way better than you. 
accept it and move on. And I said, okay, Norm, it's over. You're going to be 70 years old. You can't go. go Which was your favorite of his books? Uh, I would say the most dazzling in terms of his range was the Cornell West Reader, which consists of his essays on a wide range of topics. And as I said, he was not dropping names. He read the books. So number one, my opinion of him went way up after I sat down and did my homework. Number two, I did. I sent him a copy of my book, but as you know, most people of his stature, they get 20 books in the mail every day. I had no expectation he would actually read it. I know for certain he read every page in the book and every footnote. It's a 500, as he says, 511 page book. He read every page because most of his references were to the footnotes, like the one you heard with Rosa Luxemburg, that was to the footnote. And he kept on anguishing in the interview about, oh, going through those footnotes. Well, that to me said something about him. He read the book. Now, there were a large number of people, by my standard large number, I would estimate about 10 who were my former friends or publishers who counseled me strongly not to publish the book. I do not believe they read it past maybe page 50. But it's true by page 50, as Cornell, Dr. West put it, it's clear I'm coming out swinging and there was going to be trouble ahead if you publish the book. So that's the second thing. The third thing was the interview was about him. I played virtually no role except the formulation of the questions. I formulate around 10 very long questions based on his book. I presented the, uh, based on his books. I presented the questions to him and I just sat back and listened. He of his own volition picked up the book and held it to the screen and gave it a kind uh, acknowledgement. At the end, he gave a much longer and really it was both generous and very perceptive uh, comment. Uh, So as a person and as a scholar, uh, this was for me a, um, it was a revelation. You know, Aaron, Kate, I'm an old-fashioned skeptic such that when somebody makes it in our society, I become very uh, dubious of their integrity and their actual bona fides. And there was a period where Dr. West had made it. Uh, It was the period of the 1990s. It's when the New York Times, excuse me, when Harvard University assembled what was called the Dream Team. It was four people, Henry Louis Gates, William Junius Wilson, Cornell West, and uh, uh, Dr. Apaya, the philosopher. Uh, uh, Harvard acquired all four of them. And this this move was supposed to establish African-American studies 
as a legitimate field that had come into its own because Harvard had established the African-American studies program. And at that point, at that moment, Dr. West was in the stratosphere. He was everywhere. He was the authoritative spokesperson on race relations. Right. He came race from, Matters was that book. Right. Yeah, Race Matters in that era. He came in for a quite scathing attack by Adolf Reed. To Dr. West's credit, I would say, in subsequent years, he still sung the praises of Adolf Reed. Uh, he did not carry the uh, resentment. I'll tell you something else. And he was very critical of Obama, of course. Became a huge yeah. Obama critic. Yes. When I when I sent the, uh, Dr. West the book, I thought to myself, "Oh, thank God I didn't attack him in the book." <laughs> but then I reread some pages, the Kennedy chapter, and I did say some things, not naming him, but a little bit critical. I had forgotten I had written that. And I know he read it. And it was to his credit again, he looked past it. Now, let's be clear. I'm coming up to 70 years old, as Aaron knows, because he asked me whether I wanted a whether I wanted him to read my funeral oration, and I said, no, thank you. Not true. No, what I asked you is uh, how you feel about a little a little celebration being organized. Celebrating my death. Very uh, different. No, I said, no, thank you. And you, and, and you turned me down immediately, but, to, you know. When to are you continue. turning 70? Uh, too soon. Uh, okay. So <laughs> I um, I say to, I, so I'm, so I'm too old to be a groupie. I was never a groupie, though I was a little bit too much of the Chomsky says school, as in Chomsky said, but Chomsky said, but Chomsky said. I was part. Of, look, I he's a fat, you know, phenomenal mind, and it was hard not to be persuaded by whatever he said. In any event, um, so I'm not a groupie, and I have to be careful. But if you were, you'd be a Chomsky groupie. Or, yeah, I said disciple in my book. Um, in any event, uh, I say this because there are qualities about Dr. West which I find very admirable, aside from the scholarly side. Now, you know, he has on principle, he'll speak to anybody. Uh, he, quite, he quite often goes on with Brother Sean Hannity and Sister Laura Ingram. And there are many passages in his writings on that topic of speaking to anyone. And I, I, one of the questions I put to him was this whole question of, where is your anger? Where is your rage? And I said, you yourself, um, you yourself say of Malcolm X that his most uh, revealing, his most um, uh, decisive characteristic was the rage, the anger. And I said, Bernie Sanders, you know, he was raging against the Wall Street crooks. 
the big pharma crooks. And it was uh, Bernie Sanders who said, quote, I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. Right. That's and I said, unlike Hillary Clinton. I said, yeah, unlike Hillary Clinton. And I said, but I'm afraid that you would say Brother Henry. And then I got very personal and I said that I would loathe anybody who referred to those who loaded my family into gas chambers as brother and sister. I said, that's just a disgusting sacrilege on the dead. And I asked him to respond. I'm not going to paraphrase him because I rather, you know, people have the chance to hear him out himself. Uh, but I saw a guy who was trying very hard with the hardest questions to be morally consistent. And that was the same thing with Martin Luther King to hold fast to that belief that I love my enemy, that I love my enemy. Hmm. You see that struggle played out. I can't go there personally. I think it would disgrace the memory of my family to go there. But I do see in Cornell West, as you saw in Martin Luther King, somebody who is trying very hard to reconcile seemingly irreconcilable sentiments. When the four girls are killed in the Birmingham church, how does it come off when King says, I love my enemy? That's very hard. Norman, uh, as we wrap, uh, and I'm asked for a, a brief response. Cornell West is also running for president, and there are people in the liberal left who don't want him to do that. They call him a spoiler candidate. What do you think of his campaign? And to hear the rest of Norm Finkelstein on Cornell West, Ibram X. Kendi, and more, please subscribe at usefulidiotspodcast.com. Well, that was, as always, fascinating, interesting, heretical. Uh, love talking to Norman. And uh, you definitely should become a uh, supporters at Substack, because then you'll get to hear that full interview as well as our Thursday throwdown. But he says some really fascinating stuff. Yes, it's always great to hear from Norman and always hard to stop the interview because he has a lot to say <laughs> and uh, could could speak for a very, very long time. So thank you to Norman for joining us once again. And don't forget, guys, act fast. Get that great low price that we're offering for Substack at usefulidiotspodcast.com. Join now, and you only have to pay $5 a month. After October 1st, it goes up to $6 a month. Act fast, and we'll see you next time. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod. And use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. <laughs>